Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 63. This week's feature, the greatest gimmicks in gaming. Our final round will have the final four, so be sure to vote right now. Plus, our at the table will have Bora Bora, Rialto, Puerto Rico, Dead of Winter, and Spy Alley. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Daniel. This is Drew. Welcome to the episode, everyone. We're so glad to have you join us here this week. We are now finally, finally at the final Fab Four in our 2015 Tabletop Madness. Woohoo! Hey, that's mad, man. <laughs> so thanks for sticking with us. We hope that you've enjoyed this incredible trip through the Board Gamers Anonymous Top 100 Board Game Geeks that we shrunk down all the way down to Final Four. So at the end of the episode, we will be talking about the Final Four games that's not going to be up to us who wins. It's going to be up to you, the listener. So I'll give you more information later on, but you definitely want to check out BoardGamersAnonymous.com so that you can vote for the winner. And then next episode, we'll announce which game out of that Final Four won the entire competition. All right, so with that said, what, Drew? Oh, no. Drew's doing it again. Shouted from the tabletops! <laughs> Sir, you're gonna need to get down from there. What? Drew, what are you doing up there, Drew? What? I'm, hey, I've got some news for you. Bunch of quick little items. I'm not gonna go on at length at Gamma. There are a couple of websites that do a really good job of thorough coverage. My favorite bit from the uh, Game Manufacturers Association convention was Asmodee, their announcement that they're going to have organized play. It seemed like every time there's organized play, it's uh, card games or it's RPGs. But finally, we're going to have organized play, tournaments and all sorts of stuff with games that, that all of us love playing. Seven Wonders, Cash and Guns, and Splendor! Yay? Yay, exactly. Well, I'm glad to see Asmodee is taking it up to the next level. I know a lot of fans were really concerned that this was just a pure money-making, give-you-the-game-and-get-out kind of thing. So it's good to see that they're getting more involved with players. WizKids already does this, and they do an outstanding job. Fantasy Flight does an okay job, so let's see what Asmodee can do. Seven Wonders is a perfect game for a tournament for organized play. That would, would be a lot of fun to do a weekly uh, get-in on that. Um, they're calling it Asmo Play, which I hope at some point they're going to change. There's just a lot of interesting ways you can pronounce that. Um, I'm not going to say anything here, but they better change that name. <laughs> you have been warned, sir. <laughs> ICV2, my favorite uh, hobby industry uh, news site, said that the attendance for the Gamma was up 1,400 people. Exhibitors were up 140 exhibitors. Oddly, the, the number of stores there was down, and I hope that doesn't mean reflect the fact that stores are closing. Um, but uh, overall, it was a, a, good, a good time there. There was a greater focus on manufacturers and connecting them up with entrepreneurs and startups. Definitely a good thing for the long-term health of the industry. Um, however, their, um, 
their one of their columnists, Scott Thorne, who's a game or, game store owner himself, um, basically said there was not much new, nothing to knock his socks off as far as games. But he learned a lot about gaming and about the industry. He especially uh, said about the successful launch of the Envoy program, which is something that our friends at Double Exposure have been uh, launching, organizing a, a demo system for stores and for God, uh, organizing a demo uh, arrangement for stores and for conventions and the like. Um, it got off to a great start with some 40 companies and 50 stores signing up to uh, their Envoy program. So best of luck with Double Exposure and their launch. Um, Catan, Mayfair has a couple uh, announcements about Catan. They're having a fifth edition to go along with their brand new name, simplified name. They're going to simplify the rules, make it a little easier, ex explain things a little better. And they're also scheduled a Catan Day, which is more than a day. It's actually a three-day convention in Nashville. Also, I heard PaizoCon is, is a thing now in Seattle over Memorial Day. So you got Mayfair, you got Paizo. We heard about last year's uh, Cosmic Con for Cosmic Encounter. How many other companies do you think are going to be holding their own exclusive conventions? And which one would you guys travel for? Hmm. Well, I would love to see a Days of Wonder Con. So if they had a con just related to Small World, I'm in totally in on that. Because just so many different combinations, so much fun, and such great components – you know, it's one of these ways where it's a little gimmicky, but they're going to have all of their games in their line, not just that one game, but I could play Small World all day long. They call it Small Con? Small Con. <laughs> small Con. It's Daniel, a what about you? It's a Small Con after all. <laughs> I got to say, I don't think I would travel to go to any exclusive con. The idea of it being exclusive just bothers me, right? I like the free exchange of gaming ideas, right? I like the idea that we can sit down and play whatever game. There's lots of different games, different designers, and a lot of different ideas being thrown around at the tables. I don't want to feel like, one, that it's just a, a, a corporate selling event, right, where they're just there to you know, pimp out their product to me. Uh, and I don't like feeling restricted that I have to play this small set of games because they're the ones throwing the party. I would much rather just get together with a whole bunch of people like we did uh, when we went to Green Nation and just play games, they're whatever gonna, games, whoever made them doesn't matter. You're going to have special promos. You got to go <laughs> for the promos, man. That just sounds so bad to me. It's, right? like, it, that sounds like, but yeah. just think of all the cosplay that would go on. <laughs> Uh, small world cosplay. I small can see world that. cosplay would be awesome. <laughs> oh, man. Other, other publishing news. Uh, two IPs are coming to the tabletop via IDW. I usually think of IDW as comic books distributor. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, they, uh, they launched an Orphan Black uh, line of uh, comic books, and Great. they're creating a board game for Orphan Black. Wow. Um, and they're also trying again with The Godfather. They got rights to produce games based on the godfather i know there's a stinky game long time ago you know a quick um cash in on the godfather name but they're going to try and develop something on the series of movies ips keep marching forward currently when we look at ips it, there was a time when it was just a quick cash grab but look at battlestar galactica look what look at star trek and x-wing miniatures 
there are so many great games now that are IPs that you really need to investigate. It's worth your time and effort because the game might be great. It's no longer that kind of throwaway game that, you know, that trivia game that, you know, your family member bought for you because they heard and thought that you might like it and then it just sat in your closet because you were the only one who liked it and no one else knew how to play it. But these are really some solid hobby games, so could be great. Yeah, I think Godfather is built for Ameritrash, a great genre for that. Finally, one other bit of news from the Kickstarter front, uh, Fifth Street Games uh, declared bankruptcy. They they came out with a, a lot of smaller games, but they just keep kept churning them out every couple of months. Uh, their biggest one was Smash Monster Rampage. They also had Ghosts Love Candy. But those games and a number more are, will no longer be produced. And that's because, from what I read, the company was was funding their current productions, their production runs, with money brought in from future projects. So they would launch a Kickstarter, take that money, and give it to the game that they were already in development. They just ran out. They, they couldn't churn enough money. And it just ended up $145,000 going wow. that people pledged that's not coming back. 3,400 backers. That's an odd... I mean, once in a while there is a bankruptcy, but that's really a, an unusual event still you have to wonder if there are other companies that are doing that are desperately trying to fund current projects by launching kickstarters just something to keep in mind if if there are companies that are putting out too many kickstarter projects just just wait a little bit to see their track record yeah every time that you back a kickstarter it's a bit of a gamble it's a bit of the fingers crossed even sometimes with the best publishers products do not show up like they should and most of the time, they show up way late. Any Kickstarter that you're going to look at, take a look at the projects that they back and take a look at the number of projects they've created. And Kickstarter will actually give you a complete history of all their projects. Now, once again, don't just look at it briefly. Go take a look at each individual project and you could see the comments and the updates from that creator so you can know if they're keeping updates if people are saying things about their delivery time or their products you got to get your background before you kickstart anything right that is all the news that we have from the tabletop this week all right drew now it's finally done you need to get down all right all right (laughs) daniel i don't know why you keep bringing him that ladder each and every week well, you know, if I didn't bring him the ladder, he'd just try to climb up on his own. And I don't want him to, you know, get hurt or anything. I'd climb up on your shoulders, Daniel. Yeah, okay. then I don't want to get hurt or anything, so I bring the ladder. And now, our acquisition disorders. Acquisition disorders? That's crazy! Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game and the expansion and the promos and, of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion, the promos, and the upgraded components. See? That's not too much. But maybe, I don't know, maybe you might need the expression. Now on to our acquisition disorders. Drew, why don't you take it away? Hey. You know, I'm coming to realize that I love reprints and reiterations of -of out-of-print games. Uh, and one that I read about uh, last week was Mexica. Never heard of it before, but when I uh, heard that this French publisher, Super Meeple, is putting it out this year, that company was created just to reprint Forgotten Games. Uh, it's by Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer from 2002, their strategy game. It's an area control game. Yay! I love those! Where you're building a city very much like Mexico City on an island surrounded by water. Um, 
it sounds like a great simple premise and uh, yellow is going to be uh, doing handling the English production of it in the United States uh, I'm looking forward to it and uh, another area control game I want to grab excellent how about you Daniel uh, so for me I uh, recently went down to Kickstarter and backed Broadrage Chris really insisted I say that in that exact like that voice what what voice so I went he's really enjoying this um anyway uh, i went down and i backed blood rage it was a bit of a, a heavy decision for me because it's you know it's a kickstarter it's one of my first kickstarters other than between two cities and between two cities i had at least gotten to play a demo version of but watching the gameplay videos looking at the reviews and looking at the unbelievably gorgeous sculpts for these minis that they've made and as they just blew past every single stretch goal to the point that they're going to have all these wonderful, gigantic miniatures, um, I just had to jump in. So I jumped in, I funded I uh, funded it, I bought the expansion, a fifth-player expansion that was an optional purchase, uh, and it funded by a long margin. Uh, and so now I'm in that awkward period between having decided to give my money for something and then waiting to get it. And it's... Uh, it's a difficult experience, you know? You're like, oh, well, cool. I've, I've bought this thing. <laughs> and then I will get it in half a year. Assuming things go well, I will get it in half a year. It will go well. And if it, it doesn't will. go well, what will happen? I will, I will, I will have to blood rage. <laughs> I didn't even do it that time. Right, anyway, yeah. But uh, it's a beautiful game. It's very exciting. And if you've missed it, uh, at least at the time of this recording, uh, there is a late pledge option available on Cool Mini or Not's website. Uh, you can also get through it by going through the Blood Rage page on Kickstarter. So you might still be able to jump in and back this game, even if you haven't, uh, even if you missed the Kickstarter period, which I would suggest doing. It, all indications are that this is going to be an excellent game. Well, that sounds great. It's good to see that there's actual Kickstars that are doing well. All right, well, the game that really has got my acquisition disorder going is a reprint of Tigris and Euphrates. This is a Fantasy Flight reprint. Now, it's not going to have the really cool wood pieces to it, but it's going to have plastic, which is okay and is very Fantasy Flight. Now... If you're not familiar with this game, you really should be because this is a Reiner Knizia classic game and it's well known for its tile lane and civilization building with the special abilities and the just the different effects for this game. It's, it's a brilliant game. Now, once again, like all of his other games, not really heavy with theme. It's, it's much, much to do of a pasted-on theme, but brilliant mechanics – and it's very simple gameplay. You're placing, moving, and removing leaders. You're placing a tile. You're scoring victory points. And there's catastrophe files in the game. And you could swap up to six tiles. It's a fun, light, abstract game with a nice pacing on theme. And it's a great Euro. So if you haven't played this before, it'll be out in the market. And you should absolutely check this game out. Now, with that being said, that's our acquisition disorders. Now, let's get on to what's hitting our table. And now, at the table with BGA. All right, gentlemen, what's hitting our table? Daniel, why don't you take it away? So uh, at the table for me this week, and I know this is going to sound crazy because I never talk about this game, and it's been a long time since we've talked about this game. Gravel? Uh, but, you know, <laughs> no, it wasn't Gravel. Uh, 
but I pulled out Dead of Winter. I know it's an obscure little game that I'm sure you've never heard of, right? It's it's not a really well-known game. It's uh, put out by a smaller <laughs> public. Okay, yeah, no. Uh, we're going to talk about this game, you know, at the end of the podcast today, actually, because it's one of our fab final four fee-fi-fo-fum. The Revenge. Fs. The Revenge. <laughs> Revengeance Part Two. We don't use revengeance. the word. We don't use um, the word final. It's copyrighted. Final. <laughs> final. The word final. Yes. Um, but uh, so we got to play through uh, Dead of Winter, and you know, every time you play through a game, you see some different things about it. Uh, and I had we had a lot of fun. Uh, Chris, you were playing with me, and Anthony was playing with me, and I think we had a pretty good time. I did learn that. It doesn't handle as well with small numbers, I think, as it would with larger numbers. We played with three that's about as low as you can get the game before you have to play essentially a different game when you play the two-person variant. Uh, but it was still a lot of fun. And, you know, you see every time I open that game, every time I look, even just look at the components or watch a play video or play it myself, you're reminded of how innovative it is and how much there is in it that's really remarkable. And, you know, I look forward to seeing how the Crossroads system develops in the future this week. This is an obvious question. A buy? Yes, it is a buy, bought, would replace if destroyed in fire sort would, of game. You would hoard it if there was a zombie apocalypse and not share the wood? My secret mission would be to buy the only copy of Dead of Winter at a store if there were only one, which is in fact exactly what happened when we went to Green Nation. <laughs> Daniel, we're so cold. If only there was something to burn. Um, how about that guy? He doesn't <laughs> seem too important. Well, that I don't think you can get a higher, you know, endorsement than, hey, I'm not going to burn my game. Let's burn that human being to death to save my game. Oh, that's pure Dead of Winter, man. Pure Dead of Winter. Yeah, there is some challenges with that three-player version. I know that some people say three, four kind of work, but... I got to say, if it's four is kind of tiltering on the edge, it's it really should be five players for that game because a lot of those cards don't scale well. And not having the number of people, it makes it a little bit more of a challenge and not in a good way. It just kind of like, hey, here's this crisis. And the three of you could never accomplish no matter what. Bad stuff. And a lot of that stuff was happening over and over again. So it's a little bit of a problem with the game. But just like any game that's cooperative, and especially a game that has a trader mechanic, it really needs to have the max number of players. Definitely benefits from that, especially because of that trader mechanic, you get that ambiguity in there. And as you're saying, the missions don't scale. It's, all right, you need to get six of these things. I mean, there's I'm trying to make a scale when you have the, like, the lower food requirements for individuals, but it ultimately ends up not providing the kind of scaling you'd need. Yeah, uh, and of the, course, an in-depth analysis of this game is sorry. Hmm? Yeah, and the crisis—they don't—they don't really—they're really hard to complete. And then the crossroad cards, you know, a lot of times those are based upon having people available or out in play or in the game. And if you only have three people, you don't have a lot of people out. So yeah, okay. How about you, Drew? Well, I wish I could have contributed something to the discussion, but but I have not heard of that game. I, I really. <laughs> don't know what you're talking about but uh the game i played was a very obscure little 1992 game called spy alley that uh, some friends of mine brought to the table it was reprinted in 99 by spy alley partners william stephenson uh, designed it it's a great six-player roll and move game where the emphasis is on deduction to guess others identities it feels a little like clue 
But the clues in this game aren't cards. They're items that spies normally use. There's six nationalities. Each person is secretly a, a particular nationality. You're trying to guess what country the other players are from. Cool. You're collecting five items. There are actually 30 items available. You're, you're, the goal is to collect all five items of your nationality, get back to the embassy where you're safe, and say, yeah, yeah. But you're also guessing other people's nationalities. So if you're collecting all of your nationalities' items, they're going to pick it out right away, guess you, and you're out of the game, and they collect all your items. So you have to be collecting other nationalities' items too. Uh, a deduction game. It, it's elimination, but that's part of the fun. It, the game really moved right along, and we, we it was exciting because you name, you know, j'accuse, um, and I was wrong. <laughs> I was knocked out. I had to turn over my items to the spy I accused. <laughs> um, the game the game moved along pretty quickly. It's it's one of those elimination games where you don't feel real bad because you're you're hanging around the table to see how other people make out. Um, I wish there was a way you could elim- you know, prevent elimination because it's fun to play, but it's also fun to watch. Uh, the rolling of the die slowed the game down, but it still clipped along at 45 minutes average. It was selected by Mensa, I found this out. Wow. Um, it's a fun game. There's even a Spy Alley Junior. <laughs> it's available online. Most of the, the copies, new copies you'll find are on Amazon, but there's some other sites you can get copies of. Uh, a lot of fun. Spy Alley. I never knew it existed, but it, it's really a six-player, a lot of fun, light game. You said that someone, uh, you accused someone and you got knocked out. So if you accuse someone wrongly, you, you're yes. out, right? Yeah, it's, so, there's some trust there. So there's uh, a little bit of bait and switch going on, right, where you could just not go for your stuff at all, go for somebody else's stuff, and have everyone try to accuse you for being French or you know Canadian. Exactly, uh, exactly. And have them kill themselves, essentially, while you're going, aha. No one expected that I was from the Spanish Inquisition. That's no it. One That's it. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> well, it's true. No one does expect them, Daniel. It is always a surprise. Always. <laughs> now, I got to play a bunch of really great games this past week. First off, I got to play a classic game that I actually own as part of my collection. I was able to pick it up at Barnes & Noble at 50% off. So that Red Dot yeah. deal was awesome. It was Puerto Rico. Now... It's one of these kind of holes in my hobby gaming type of collection and play. And it's sitting on my shelf. It was kind of this daunting game. It was one of the best games of all time. It had a spot on Board Game Geek at the very top and was not letting go until recently. And all I heard about this game was that it's so heavy. It's so difficult. The rules are bad. It's a bit of a challenge. And I remember looking at this game on my shelf and going, yeah, uh, even though I got it for 50% off, it probably wasn't a good idea. Maybe I should get rid of it. You know, no one's playing it anymore. And I got an opportunity to play this game, and I absolutely love it. I was so shocked, so surprised, so happy, and I'm thrilled. I'm really excited. And I've been looking on Board Game Geek. And there is an updated anniversary edition that has beautiful components. And even though I still have not opened my Puerto Rico box, I'm looking at the anniversary edition and I'm salivating. I'm like, hmm, if only I could get that anniversary edition. I really like that anniversary edition. So I went from, 
you know, keep that game away, if not sell it, to I want the anniversary edition, how can I find it? Now, San Juan is a spinoff of Puerto Rico, Mm -hmm. and it's a simple card game, a brilliant, beautiful game. And later on, Drew will talk about Race for the Galaxy and their connections there. But Puerto Rico is a little more complex. It has some tiles. So you'll actually, instead of be playing cards, you'll be playing tiles as part of your tableau. You'll be setting up different types of plantations, and you'll be able to grow corn, indigo, sugar, tobacco, and coffee. And you'll also be able to be trading in the market or putting these resources on ships and shipping them off. But this game is probably a little more strategic, and that's what I really love about it. San Juan is such a great game, but you take Puerto Rico, and when you're choosing a different role, you're actually messing with other players. It's not just like San Juan where you play a certain card and you got that card and maybe there's another copy of it. Maybe they'll get it. They won't get it. Maybe you can trash a card. But with Puerto Rico, the actions you take, the selections of the certain actions at certain times really messes with other players. So Puerto Rico is an absolute buy. I love this game. I can't wait to get this back to the table. I am shocked at how much I really love this game and how long it actually took to get to the table. So I got to thank everybody at the Bergen County Board Gamers for teaching me this game and especially Yitz for remembering all the rules well enough so that we didn't (laughs) get bogged down on time too much. So an outstanding game there. I got a couple of others I want to kind of run through really quickly because it's been such a great game for Euro board gaming. I also got a chance to play Rialto. This is the Stefan Feld game. Thanks to Dave for teaching this game. I've been looking forward to this. I actually pre-ordered this game on Amazon. There was another 50% off deal. And I'm looking forward to getting this game to my collection. It was coming in. And Dave was like, what do you want to play? And I'm like, let's play Rialto because I haven't got a chance to play this yet. It's a light game from the Stefan Feld collection. Once again, the theme is completely pasted on. You can smell the pace when you play this game. And you're building canals and you're building bridges and you're moving your area control markers around there. And you're selecting sets of cards and you're playing the cards in a certain time action. And then you're also selecting tiles in order to give you special abilities. And it's a Stefan Feld game and it's a fun game. And it has literally the worst score tracker I've ever seen in a board game. It was completely agreed by everyone at the table that this dark blue misty looking score track that has these little lantern lights that means that you need to put your little disc right in the middle of these two lantern lights it was my god the entire game we were got we were just struggling with the score track it was it was crazy now let me say drew have you played this game before no, but I, I, you just gave me this great idea. Like, we got to do a hall of shame for scoring tracks. Oh, my God. I could, I could name a few others. This was brutal. Now, <laughs> I got a chance to play this game. It's an okay game. But the problem with this game is that it comes down to a couple of simple things. First off, there are some buildings that are better than others. And the selection of certain buildings at certain times is almost like solving a puzzle. Add to that the fact that this once you get high on the doge track, which is the turn marker track de- de- determining who gets to go first, second, third, and fourth, you get to select which section of cards you want. So the tile mechanic is very mechanical. 
It's very mathematical as far as you take this and you take this and you take this and then you have a good machine. And there's no better machine than that, I would argue. And the selection of cards, there's always seems to be a better selection of cards. So I got to say I was really disappointed with this game. And I was so disappointed that I went on Amazon and I canceled my order of Rialto. So even though it was 50% off, even though I'm a big Feld fan, the fact that someone else in our gaming group owns this game, eh, it's a play, and that's about it. So that's my review of Rialto. Kind of a underwhelming review. Yeah, I mean, I was there while you guys were playing. Unfortunately, I had work to do, so I was on my computer most of the time. Boo! Priorities, man. peeking over the corner. But I stopped being so envious after a while. I mean... The gameplay just, there wasn't a lot going on. And there was one player at the table who really knew what he was doing. And it's Anthony, right? Not not our Anthony, but an Anthony. <laughs> an Anthony, a unit of Anthony uh, at the table. You have to understand uh, it's was, New York. There's a lot of units of Anthony here. There are a lot of, many units of Anthony. But he, you know, great guy. And he was just wiping the floor with everyone. Though Dave actually took it away in the end with a really great move. Yes. Um, but it just... There just seems to be that much going on. There are just better Euros out there. And that scoring track, oh my god, it's the worst thing ever. It just, for me, when I, I love Euros and I love so much about what they can do, but I dislike Euros where there's just one good choice to take and everything else is a secondary bad choice. It's a good thing that you had a chance to try before you buy I'm so um, grateful for yeah. Dave for that. I still like the game, and if for some reason I could get it for maybe 75% off, <laughs> I would add it to my collection just as a collector of Feld games. But I just can't imagine this game hitting the table anytime soon. Now, in order to redeem Feld, I also got a chance to play Bora Bora. Now, once again, this is another Feld game that I bought, which is in wrap in <laughs> on my shelf. But once again, thanks to the people at New Jersey Board Gamers, I was able to get this game to the table, and I absolutely enjoyed and love this game. Now, if you haven't played Bora Bora, once again, this is also another pasted-on theme, so there's no reason to kind of get like, oh, wow, it's like being on the islands, and it's so interesting. It's like, nah, it's basically selecting tiles, choosing you know, what action tiles go better with what, and rolling dice. So it has a little Castle of Burgundy where you're rolling the dice, and based upon the roll and based upon what action you choose, you can get a lot of an action or a high benefit of an action if you roll a six. But if you roll a one, two, or three, or a low number, while it doesn't give you a lot or it doesn't give you an ideal situation, what you're able to do is block out that action for other players. So if I roll a 2 and place a 2 on a specific action and you guys only have 3, 4, 5s, and 6s, you can't use that action. Now, there are god cards that kind of break that and allow you to use those dice in that situation, but generally, low numbers block out certain spots. As a first-time gamer, I was able to pull this game out and win, but it was probably due to the fact that it's so much like Trajan. Now, it doesn't have that Moncala, But that action selection is really nice, being able to pick certain tiles, man and woman tiles, that you're able to activate each round was really fun. It's beautiful, it's colorful, it has great components, and despite all the paste in this game, 
it's still an outstanding game. I love the fact that I bought this game. I can't wait to get to the table. And while Bruges probably could possibly be my favorite, Bora Bora is a close second, and maybe with some more plays might be uh, number one. I don't know. It's hard to say. Trajan is up there as well. But once again, thanks to Dave and thanks to Nicole, especially for breaking this game out. We had a great night with Trajan and Borbor at the table, and both are great games. And if you haven't checked them out, get somebody who knows Feld so they can teach you these games, and I think you'll have a great time. All right, so that's everything for At the Table. Now let's take it on to our feature review. So our feature this week is the best gimmicks in games. Now, you've probably seen this as you either walk around a convention or you're walking around your favorite game store and you look over and you see a table that's not just playing a board game but has something awesome and shiny and big and dynamic and fun and it draws you to the table, it draws you to sit down and just watch the game play. And maybe it's the reason you picked up that game because it has that really cool blank. And it just adds something really thematic to the gameplay. So oftentimes when we're talking about Ameritheme games, we're talking about games that have that special component, that special miniature, that special unique thing that that game is known for. So this week, we're going to talk about our favorite gimmicks in board games. Now, we're going to exclude your general, the game has dice, the game has miniatures, because, you know... A lot of games have those things. We're going to talk about really unique things about games that really stick out to you. Now, for me, one of the unique things and one of the kind of gimmicky kind of things about games that I really love to see is unique type of money. So starting off, I'm going to talk about Abyss. Now, I've already talked again and again about how beautiful Abyss's artwork is. But one of the things that we haven't talked about is their money. And in, in Abyss, since it's an underwater kingdom, their money is pearls. So with this game, you get these little white pearls, and you get these really unique kind of coral cups. So in the game, when you're selling and buying things, when you're buying things in this game, you're going to be using pearls as the currency. They're a nice quality little pearl, and it's really dark cup, and it really adds so much to the game. So for me, starting off, Abyss's Pearls and Cups, so thematic, so great part of this game, and it really wants you to make you play this game again and again. Another great gimmick is Dungeon Fighter's Dice Play. Now, if you haven't played dice in Dungeon Fighters, you never have played with dice. Now, the unique mechanic here is Dungeon Fighter has you fighting monsters by throwing dice in unique ways based upon the weapons that you're using. So when you get a card, it might say, flick the dice off the top of your head or under your legs or with your eyes closed. And when you shoot the dice, you're trying to shoot these dice towards a big target with these little kind of gaps in between. If you hit the right spot on this big target, then you'll score a hit and be able to take out the monster. Now, here's the fun part. Based upon your character and based upon the weapons that are in play, a lot of these mechanics get mashed together. So you might have to take the die, shoot it off someone's hand 
under their legs with your eyes closed to hit the target. Now, this is where things get really, really crazy. So if you've ever seen this game in play, it's pure chaos, but it's also pure fun. So that's Dungeon Fighter, the dice play part of it. Now, another great gimmicky mechanic has to be Seven Wonders. Now, we all know about the card drafting part of it, but if you've ever played Seven Wonders, you've played with these lavish boards that show off these great artwork. These boards are not essential to play because you get an idea of what you need to do here but you'll be sticking cards underneath to build this wonder so it has a thematic element to the game now beyond that it also has the little element on top so it's not just a card drafting game but those boards those beautiful wonder boards which are two-sided and have an a and b side so you can have a little bit different gameplay are so thematic for the game, and it's a beautiful feature. Now, another part to Seven Wonders is its newest expansion, Babel. Now, Babel has this middle board where you'll be placing these Babel tiles to create the Tower of Babel. Now, on each tile, it has a special ability that'll affect, it'll affect everyone in play. Now, as the game goes on, other people can put pieces of this Babel Tower covering over previous pieces which will then negate that effect. So throughout the game, effects are coming into play and going out of play, and you're building an actual Tower of Babel. A little tiny one, but you're building a Tower of Babel, and that's really fun and really thematic and a little gimmicky, but still outstanding fun. Now, another mechanic, another gimmicky type of the game would have to be Hanabi. Now, Hanabi has just a basic set of cards, but they play with them very differently. Now, if you've ever walked by a game of Hanabi, you might kind of tilt your head a little bit because the cards, at least the face of the cards, the really important material, the important information, is not being shown to the player. They're being shown to everyone else at the table. That's really fun. It's really interesting. It's damn obvious, but wow, what a great idea. Another great gimmicky game, another beautiful component game, has to be Days of Wonder Coliseum. The ability to expand your Coliseum with these little pieces, the dice are really nice, but building your Coliseum piece by piece to expand upon it, to build an emperor's box, to build portions and expansions to the stadium is so thematic, it's so fun. When you walk past, you know that a game of Colosseum is going on. Beautiful components, a little bit gimmicky, but a lot of fun. And it's a real mechanic because expanding the Colosseum allows more senators and even the emperor to enter and find a place. I also want to talk about Rampage, or what's currently known as the Terra and Meeple City. Now, you can talk about the monsters that are these nice, chunky wood pieces. You can even talk about the cars that you're able to throw in this game or how you're able to blow from the top of one of these monsters. But what I really want to talk about and what really draws everyone's interest is these buildings that are built upon meeples. So you'll put four meeples down, you'll put a section of building, you'll put four meeples down, you'll put a section of building, and then eventually you have these grand buildings that are based upon the little meeple structures what an interesting and beautiful idea for being able to score points and to have certain people in these buildings without needing to have walls because you have meeples holding up the different floors 
So that is Rampage, or now it's called Terra Meeple City, the Meeple Buildings. What a great job. Daniel, what about you? What do you got? A couple of things jump out to me. And one of the first things that jumps out to me when I pick up a game is what I'm picking up. What is the game packaged in? You know what game I never had to wonder what it was about? Love Letter. Because the second you pick it up, you're like, oh, this is a velvet pouch with golden embroidery on it. It just fits what the game is about, right? It seems like the the pouch in which you secret away your love letter for the princess, right? Likewise, you've got the dungeon roll box. It's a little treasure chest, and you open it up, and, oh, this is awesome. And there's something nice about that because right from the get-go, the game is saying, here's what I am, right? Everything about me is built to be that way, right? That just shows that they thought so much about the way they wanted the game to work, the way they wanted the game to feel, that they even went back to reconsider how they're going to package it. So that's a huge win for me. Anytime the packaging captures theme, as opposed to just being a pretty picture, uh, that's going to be a big win for me. Another thing that uh, I really like is, you know, a lot of games have secret information, and a pretty standard way of dealing with that are these little screens, right? These little cardboard screens. Uh, And again, most of the time, these cardboard screens are just pretty pictures. And they're usually thematic-ish, but they're mostly just pretty pictures. A game that goes above and beyond in that regard, though, is Diamonds, because they have a vault, right? And that just, that's right. Yes, the diamonds do go in a vault. That works for me. That just, that is where diamonds go. Uh, And so I really like that. And Diamonds also deserves, you know, uh, an honorary mention for having the really colorful gems for its diamonds as well. Uh, But those vaults just carry so much more significance to me than a random pretty picture of a diamond mine would have. So another game that uh, jumps out at me as someone who does secret information right is Francis Drake. Now, I picked this up at Dream Nation. I haven't gotten a chance to play my copy yet, but I did get a chance to punch it and put it together. And in Francis Drake, one of the ways you keep your information secret is you have these little treasure chests where you insert your money, and it's an actual little 3D treasure chest, and that's that's just awesome, right? It's... Such a silly little thing to make a big deal about. But at the same time, when you buy into it, it just makes it that much easier to get swept up in the atmosphere of the game. So I'm really a big fan of that. Because it's oftentimes the little touches on the necessary elements of the games, that little thing that shows they thought about it a little bit extra, that really brings you in, you know? Another place that I really like to look is to resource pieces. And the one that jumps out as sort of a hero here is the special edition of Euphoria. Uh, and you could just say the Stonemire games, treasure chest more generally, right? But where gold feels like metal, right? It's made of metal. Where the stone feels like stone, the brick feels like brick. Having that tut to it, and right? not just, you know, oh, here's a yellow cube. And not just, oh, here's a yellow cube that kind of looks like a block of gold now. But here's something that you touch it and you know what it is. That's a huge thing for me. You could extend that to metal coins too, right? It feels like money in your hands, not just a bunch of cardboard. And all of these things are really great. But the one that I think takes the cake, the coolest gimmick that any game has done for me in a long time, the one that took a game that I thought was, you know, kind of silly. And at first I was resistant to this gimmick and totally won me over is Mice and Mystics Storybook Audio. Oh my god. I was listening to this thing going, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How just how annoying and cutesy could you be, right? We get it. It's a storybook. 
not 10 seconds later. And then what happened, Papa? Tell me. And everyone at the table who I was sitting with, a bunch of people, we all started joking about this. And immediately, though, we are whisked away into the storybook world because when you play along with it, that's such an amazing touch to the game. It makes you feel the storybook atmosphere more strongly than anything else could have. So that's going to be my my capstone there. That's the one that really takes it away for me is the Mice and Mystics audio. All a bunch of great stuff. You, Drew, what do you, uh, what do you got for us? Oh, it, it was um, interesting you talked about the packaging because I hadn't even thought about that ahead of time. But what I wanted to talk about are some classic gimmicks from classic games from the golden age of board games, the 1960s. That's when everything took off. Um, and there are a couple simple gimmicks that we take for granted now. The Game of Life from 1960, Milton Bradley, has a spinner. In 1960, that was like, you know, everything was, was roll and move. You either had a die or you had a little thing, a little arrow that you flicked with your finger and it spun around and landed on a number. The spinner was brand new. It was unusual. And yet, man, that thing stood the test of time. Uh, and I, I would... I would get out the game of life just to spin the thing. I love the sound. Awesome. And another classic from 1965, the Kona Brothers game, Trouble, and their Pop-O-Matic. That is like a part of our pop culture now. Pop-O-Matic. Pop the dice. And I think those sounds are so iconic, Drew, that spin can only be that life spinner it can't be anything else and that pop-o-matic bubble can only be from that game it can't be anything else there's nothing else that makes those sounds <laughs> i i would just wail on that thing especially one with a little r2d2 in it I, um but yeah uh-oh <laughs> i gotta say it's so yeah. iconic that actually that might be trademarked daniel so we might actually get in some trouble here <laughs> but, that's, but that's true. Those are one-of-a-kind gimmicks. You don't associate with any other game. Two other gimmicks, a little bit more sophisticated, more complex. Um, electricity, introducing you know battery-powered electricity with operation. Um, where the zzz, you get this, it felt like a shock every time you touched the sides. And then the little red bulb lit up. Gimmick, but man, that was successful. And Mousetrap, what a big gimmick. It's a terrible game. But the gimmick sells it. It's like you love to put together this little Rube Goldberg contraption. And that was from 1963, ideal. Um, Tremendous. This is the golden age when gimmicks came alive and just grew the game industry tremendously. I wanted to mention two other gimmicks from games that are now long forgotten that came from the 60s. But they're awesome, awesome gimmicks that were just way ahead of their time. Merv Griffin long before his TV game uh, career, created this game called Word for Word. It's not worth talking about the game itself, but it's a timed game. Mattel, in 1963, produced it. It's timed, but instead of a little hourglass with sand timer, they had this gyro timer. You, you stood up this plastic stand, and this round gyro thing would zigzag back and forth down this track, bzz, spinning, 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 all the way down to the bottom. And that was your timer. That was it. And it was brilliant because who really has the patience <laughs> to look at this little sand timer and watch all the grains go through in the middle of a game? 
you you want to focus on the people playing the game. You don't want to focus on this timer. Whereas with this gyro timer zipping around back and forth, you could focus on the game and still notice that out of the corner of your eye. You knew how much time you had left. It was very obvious. So it was a brilliant gimmick that nobody else reproduced. I would love to see it used more. And then this finally, this other game, and actually Word for Word and Beat the Market are both games from my collection I picked up at thrift shops. Beat the Market from 1968, Clever Games. It's a stock market game. You're buying and selling stocks. The prices are determined by four dice, two black dice, two white dice. They're eight-sided dice. This was before Dungeons and Dragons, long before. They had eight-sided dice, and the dice were loaded you got to play a game with loaded dice. Two of the dice were loaded to come up with high numbers more often than not, and the other two for low numbers. So the two low dice represented a bear market, low prices. The two high dice represented the, a, a bull market. So you were able to manipulate the dice at certain points during the game. You could swap out a white die for a black die and change the market prices. Brilliant little gimmick. Nowadays, they just change the, the digits on the, the sides of the dice, so you, you, know, you can have variation there, but I've never heard of this. Eight-sided dice back in 1968, loaded dice. Brilliant. Nobody's ever used it again. They're way ahead of their time. Gimmicks have been around since the 60s. They're always going to be around. They make gaming a lot of fun, don't they, guys? Do you guys remember that electronic tower from the Dark Tower game? Oh, yes. man, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, an entire game was essentially like, look at this cool thing we have. <laughs> There's no other part into that game. Just, this is so cool. And the sounds oh. and those voices. <laughs> Isn't that it? Oh, yeah, <laughs> wow. It's, it's so iconic. It's just such a – Dark Tower was such a beautiful game that actually showed up at Myriad Games, and yeah. I think Jimmy had that. We were like, oh, I remember that. Can we play that? <laughs> the game went on forever, but we still love that <laughs> that whole gimmick. And I think oh. that's probably I, – I think we could all agree that's still to this day the greatest game gimmick of all time. It's legendary. Yeah, it, it, it is the stuff of legends. It is pretty impressive. All right, boys and girls, so get your gimmicks out to the table. And now, our final round. And for this week, it's going to be our fab four of our final bracket. We finally made it to the end. <laughs> so for this final four, we wanted to talk about the final bracket and let you know a little bit about those final games, what we love about them, why they deserve to be there, and maybe even why they deserve your vote. Now, these final four games are all outstanding games and all deserve to be the best game for the 2015 Tabletop Madness. Each one of us is going to be speaking to the game, and Daniel's going to do double duty this week. Daniel, why don't you start off for the 2015 Tabletop Madness? What bracket do you have for us? So first, I'm going to start with our Americlash bracket, and our representative from the Americlash bracket is Dead of Winter. Now, I spoke about this a little bit earlier. We've spoken about this on previous podcasts. It is probably one of the biggest games out there right now so chances are you've heard of it chances are you've played it or wanted to play it or watched someone else play it because they sold out and it's hard to find now uh, though 
not for long, right? They're reprinting? I think they're printing a second run, right? I hope. Anyway, uh, regardless of that, now Dead of Winter is a fantastically innovative, semi-cooperative game uh, and won numerous accolades at numerous trade shows, including the uh, Golden Geek Best Innovative Board Game of 2014, which is something I think everyone would agree it deserves. It is introduced a lot of new ways of putting things together. You've got the crossroad cards as a way to trigger certain narrative elements in game. Uh, You've got uh, a wonderful way of dealing with these semi-cooperative trader elements that keeps the trader from being too obvious while also keeping it from being too difficult to be the trader. Uh, And I think that just, that deserves an ovation of its own. It's also the only zombie game on the market that feels anything like a zombie game. It's the only one where you genuinely feel like you are trying to battle off the bitter undead hordes and survive against the not always honest tendencies of mankind at the same time, which is what zombies are about. So that's Dead of Winter. Fantastically innovative game. Tons of fun to play. The best semi-cooperative game on the market. The best crater mechanic on the market. And one of the best games from 2014, if not the best. And all of that makes a pretty convincing argument for why you should vote for it. Drew, how about you from the card and dice bracket? Yes, I am here to represent... For my game, Race for the Galaxy, my favorite, I think it's the best ever made. It's from 2007. In eight short years, it's become a classic. Everybody loves, everybody plays. Thomas Lehman created a, a brilliant game. There are a couple things about it. It is brilliantly combined simplicity with complexity. It's basically solo play. Everybody's got their own little tableau they're working on, but there's absolutely no downtime. One simple card can be used for three different things. <laughs> it's just got so many cool features. Um, that On that last uh, issue, uh, Chris, you mentioned earlier that San Juan is very similar to Race for the Galaxy. In that sense, it is, where uh, one card can represent uh, the text that's on the card. It can represent money. You spend one of your cards for one unit of coin. And you can also use a card to represent a resource that you create and then consume in order to get victory points or more money. Very simple play. There's nothing more complex than that. The complexity lies in the intricate and beautiful text on the cards, which allows you to mix and match planets with developments, four different kinds of resources. You can focus on one particular, you can broaden broaden out, or you can skip all that and go for a military option and try to dominate uh, create, dominate planets and developments through military force. There are a lot of different ways to win in this game, a lot of different angles to pursue. And you can pursue your strategy confident that no one is going to stomp on you. No one's going to ruin your little tableau, but it's still a race because you've got to get to those, because you've got to get to those 12 developments and planets, or you have to reach a certain number of victory points. And you can end the game fairly quickly by trying to collect as many victory points until they're all gone, or you can race to build your 12 cards in the tableau or some combination. It's, it allows for so many different styles of play. Let me give you an example about the downtime factor. It's one of the few games where when the other person plays a particular action, you get to play too. Just like San Juan, 
there's a bonus for choosing a particular action, but everybody gets to do the same action. And you can, in a particular turn, you can take quite a few actions if everybody chooses a different action. So some games you can get a lot accomplished in a short time. And I mentioned Roll for the Galaxy. It, it allows for different reiterations. It allows for expansions that really blend well. Um, some of the expansions to Race for the Galaxy give you goals to work for, uh, extra victory points that you can gain and you can lose. You've got to hold on to them. So it, it allows more interaction than these, uh, these expansions make Race for the Galaxy a more interactive game, if that's what you want. It has that ability. To me, it's, it's a very simple game with a lot of possibilities, much like Risk. Uh, it feels that kind of game to me, that you can do a lot with this game. And it's going to be an evergreen. It's going to be around forever because it is the number one game, Race for the Galaxy. Ladies, gentlemen, let me introduce you to the greatness that is Caverna. The K Farmers. This is the Uwe Rosenberg new classic game that has rocketed up the Board Game Geek's top 100 games of all time. Its base game play is very similar to Agricola. You will be building farms in order to feed your people and score victory points. Now, unlike most Euro games, Caverna is thematic. Now that's a thing that you don't often hear about Euro games. You will actually be able to plow the land, to plant, and to reap the wheat and the vegetables in order to produce food for your family, to be able to score victory points, to be able to mine. And when you mine in this cavern, not only will you be creating new spaces for your dwarves to live in, but you'll also be able to produce stone. It makes sense. It's thematic. You'll be able to dig and mine for ore. You'll be able to gain rubies like any great miner would do. You'll also be able to keep livestock. So there'll be dogs, and the dogs will be able to manage the sheep. And you'll get donkeys that could be in the caves there's also all types of animals, and there's all types of rooms that you can have in your cave. Now, that's just a start, because this is a worker placement game by Uwe Rosenberg, and it's brilliant, and the pieces and the components are amazing. It has all the animeeples to it. It also plays one to seven players. Imagine a beautiful Euro game that can play as a one-player game or can accept seven players. Now, the game is intense and long, and by picking the room tiles, you'll be able to build a tableau of special abilities that will benefit you throughout the game. Now, let's talk about the game itself. As the game goes on, you'll choose, as a worker placement game, you will choose certain actions, and those actions will be able to snowball throughout the game as you build your tableau, as you give birth to new dwarves that will be able to help you farm, help you mine, and also help you quest. This game has questing, so you can get your dwarves weapons in order to go off in questing and bring back rare resources throughout the game. So no longer will you be stuck to only those couple spots by, by questing 
out in the wilderness, you'll be able to bring back rare resources and take special actions that you couldn't normally take. It takes everything that you love from Agricola, and yet it doesn't have that strangle element to it that people tend to hate and keeps gamers away from the game. It's a beautiful game, outstanding components, a lot of fun. It's the quintessential Euro. You have to, you must vote for Caverna the Cave Farmers. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty good game. <laughs> you know, it doesn't really seem fair to me that I get the two best games on the list and oh, you guys get stuck. Man. You know, get stuck with those games. I mean, come on. Dead of Winter, excellent game. And the next one that I get to talk about again, because my voice is so lovely, is Mice and Mystics, which is also a fantastic game. Gimmick. Beyond- it's got a gimmick. It does got have a gimmick, and it's an amazing gimmick. It's a fantastic gimmick. I do suggest you buy the audio. I know it's a few extra bucks, but it really does. Bring in the experience for what would be an awesome game even without it, but it's nice to have that touch. Mice and Mystics has beautiful components. The miniatures are awesome. Right? It's got a lot of variability in gameplay. You can put together different skill sets. You can put together different equipment sets. Right? You can travel through the adventures with your friends, and it creates a natural campaign element. So Gru over there with his love of legacy games should be wanting to step in about now and admit the superiority of Mice and Mystics or Dead of Winter, whichever you'd like. The, the real way you have to go here, though, is anything made by Plaid Hat Games. You just you vote Plaid Hat, and it'll end up okay for you. And how much are they paying you for that now? <laughs> uh, nothing, but if they'd like to send me some free board games, I would ac- gladly accept the, uh, the uh, retroactive bribery. <laughs> Uh, especially if there are any of the excellent expansions to Mice and Mystics that mean you can play this game forever and you won't get bored. And you'll never get out of that dungeon. You'll be stuck you'll... there forever. <laughs> well, you know, who wants to, though, really? Who really wants the game to end? <laughs> so that's Mice and Mystics, and uh, that's our four final fab four fantastically fun four folk fans free time and that's the final time you'll ever hear that (laughs) yeah yeah sorry so now that you heard us talk about the final four games we want you to go to boardgamersanonymous.com where you'll find a poll in which you can vote for your favorite game out of these final four remember we got the euro bracket we have the ameritheme or americlash bracket we have the dice and card bracket and we have the gateway bracket So four outstanding brackets, choose the best game, get your friends to vote, and then next episode we'll come back and let you know which game won the Board Gamers Anonymous 2015 Tabletop Madness. RTFG rocks. RTFG. They couldn't hear you because they were hanging out in the cave, Drew. We're all cave farmers. You know how it goes. Anything by plaid hat, man. Just everyone (laughs) needs a plaid hat. I don't know. That seems like a weird fashion accessory, actually. But, you know. (laughs) Teach their own. RFDG. Give it some R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Tell me what it means to me. All right, so that's the end of this episode. Be sure to check us out on iTunes and give us some reviews. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on Board Game Geek. And until next time, this is Chris. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. 
And as gimmicky as it may seem after 63 episodes, we will always save you a seat at the table. 